This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the channel. My name is Rosemary Valenzuela Vicente, and I'm so excited to be sitting here with Tessa Bridal to discuss her new book, The Dark Side of Memory, Uruguay's Disappeared Children and the Families That Never Stop Searching. Tessa is also the author of The Tree of Red Stars and other books, both fiction and nonfiction. Tessa, welcome to the channel. It's so wonderful to have you here with us. Thank you. So I wanted to jump off really quick and start with, um, obviously, as many of your readers know, but perhaps our listeners may not, you're Uruguayan, obviously, and Uruguay is a place that is frequently featured in your work. And I was especially interested in reading the book because it tackles a history that has often been underexamined. I think because, you know, you and I talked before, Argentina, Chile, Brazil are typically uh, areas that receive more attention during this period. Can you give us a little bit of political context regarding the role of Uruguay in the Latin American Cold War? Well, Uruguay is a very small country, and I think that is one of the main differences between it and countries like Brazil and Argentina and Chile, uh, which were much more prominent, of course, in the news than than Uruguay was. And I think it's that uh, smallness. It's a country that really the population hasn't changed much in the last uh, decade, few decades. It's about three and a half million people, and about a million and a half of those are in Montevideo. And the so that makes for some social differences when a country is that small. We we have a saying there, which I use in the book, which is. Somos pocos y nos conocemos, which means there are a few of us and we know each other. And one of the things that was uh, that affected us a great deal in Uruguay was that most families had someone on either side of the struggle. Uh, we had someone who perhaps was serving in the military in some capacity, and we had someone who was part of the whatever uh, people want to call it, a guerrilla movement, a resistance movement, uh, a socialist movement, whatever um, they were. Ultimately, we called them the Tupamaros. Um, and they were the ones who were leading uh, the effort for change in Uruguay and who later suffered the most when it came time for arrests and both within Uruguay and Argentina. And many people in Uruguay left Uruguay for Argentina, particularly because it's a neighboring, bordering country, and was the last democracy left in um, Latin America, pretty much. And so a lot of people moved with their families to Argentina. 
So the link between the two countries is very strong. My mother was from Argentina. Um, and that, I think, those are some of the differences I can think of. I'm not sure if um, you were trying to get at something else with your question. Please feel free to ask me more. Yeah, I think I was, um, no, that's, that's absolutely great. But I think I also wanted to ask, um, just in general, where was Uruguay on the political spectrum during the Latin American Cold War? Latin Uruguay had a very, very long history of being a democracy. Um, it, it had been under a dictatorship a couple of times in the past, but in the rather distant past, Uruguay had from, for a very, very long time been a democracy and uh, a very stable and, and strong one. So it was um, a time of tremendous turmoil for everybody when uh, the military eventually uh, took over. Right. And so can you tell us a little bit about what sparked this project for you? I'm thinking in sense of um, what made you want to pursue a topic of, you know, lost children and separated families for your book, especially because, again, like I said, like, I think that Argentina, for example, gets a huge height, like a huge spotlight when it comes to this topic because of, you know, the desaparecidos and, and things like that. And you... I feel like the literature coming out of Argentina and like speaking about those kinds of separated families is a lot stronger in that area than in others. And so what was really the reason that made you kind of want to pursue this project for your next book? Well, let me just start by saying that uh, the vast majority of the children who disappeared, uh, Uruguayan children who disappeared, disappeared in Argentina. So that sort of link and connection was even stronger then. But my interest was um, I had left Uruguay before the very, very worst um, of the dictatorship happened. So I was getting my news through friends and through family. And I found the idea that children had disappeared to be so profoundly shocking in a country like Uruguay, which was so family-centered. Um, every, everything in Uruguay involved the whole family. If you were going to a party, if you were celebrating Christmas, if it was a birthday, whatever it was, it always included the children. There was very little separation of the children, regardless of the time or what kind of a party it was. Uh, any party that was family-oriented involved the children. And it was very difficult for me to, to think about, um, I was no longer a child myself, but of all the children I had known in, uh, and, and of them disappearing. Um, and I had a friend who had two of her children born in prison, but that was in Uruguay. And they were not, they were given to her family. So she didn't have to, she had to face the separation, but not the disappearance. But there were um, a, a number of, of mothers and grandmothers who did have to face absolute disappearance of both their children and their grandchildren. And it just seemed to me uh, uh, such an unspeakable uh, thing, so, so hard to even imagine. I, by then, had two children of my own, and that also especially just heightened the whole uh, my awareness of it and my wanting to know how is it possible for this to have happened in Uruguay. And then I realized that it had not necessarily happened in Uruguay. Most of it had happened in Argentina, but the 
the victims that I was interested in were all Uruguayan. There were children from other countries that disappeared as well. But um, I felt that I had more contacts in Uruguay, people that I could uh, access and talk to about this. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to interview the, the mothers and the grandmothers and, and um, anyone who had been involved with this. And I did. I, I went to Uruguay and they were absolutely remarkable. They, they told me their stories and uh, their concerns. And some of them were still looking for, for either a child or a grandchild at the time I spoke to them. Um, and then I returned to the United States just before 9-11. And uh, after that, after there was the country in a way kind of settled down a little bit, I tried to get my book published. And I was told in no uncertain words that my book was unpatriotic and that there was no way it would ever get published in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that was because I did cover things. Mm -hmm. I covered things like the condo plan. I, I covered, you know, the involvement of the United States in the overthrow of so many democracies in Latin America. And at that time, that was considered a very unpatriotic thing to do. So I was pretty, um, I was pretty shattered by that. I was uh, disappointed and hurt and all the things you can imagine as a writer. And also I was disappointed for all the people who had told me their stories. And um, so time went by, time went by and I published another novel and I just um, eventually after quite a while, I thought I, I really do need to get back to this. I want to get back to it and I don't care what it takes. I'm, I'm going to do it. And I returned to Uruguay to then interview the children, who were, of course were no longer children, they were adults now, who had been found. And so in the end, I became very thankful that the book had not come out when I first wrote it, because I was able to enrich it so much by what the survivors told me. So um, that's a kind of in a nutshell. I think I've wandered away from your question, perhaps. So feel free to bring me back. No, that's absolutely wonderful, and I, I'm really, I'm, I'm honest. I got a little bit of goosebumps, honestly, because it's something that I, I wasn't expecting. I mean, obviously, like post nine eleven, we understand kind of the political context and sort of like the surge in nationalism in the United States, but for your book to be kind of shot down in so many ways because of it being unpatriotic just because it highlights an area of American history that needs to be talked about, right? The role of the U.S. in Latin America, especially in the Latin American Cold War, especially in places where so much violence happened. Um, that's that's really fascinating. And I think that's, that's so maybe even different from academic publishing in many ways because in academic publishing, obviously, like these kinds of topics um, don't necessarily get shut down in the same way. So that's that's really fascinating and such a difficult thing to contend with as somebody who's obviously like not just attached to the stories of the of the people, but it's your it's the story of the country where you know you're from, and it's it's very difficult. I can imagine that was very tr- like trying for you. And also, I I remember when um, when war was declared by the United States. 
I, I remember turning to my husband and, and saying, I'm, I'm about to have a panic attack. I think we're going to recreate the same mistakes that were made in Latin America. Yeah. And I can did. imagine there's a lot of parallels. We yeah. did, you know, Abu Ghraib and all those places, secret torture centers. Um, it was very, uh, very, uh, very traumatic, even though I myself had not been in one of those torture centers. It was like uh, going back to the past and thinking, did we learn nothing? So one of the elephant, the elements that I found most striking in the narratives that you presented in the book is the power of family and the importance of motherhood. And I really wanted to talk about this after you just mentioned that after you had your own children, this project became even stronger for you. So can you tell us a little bit about the role of motherhood in this book? I, you know, obviously, like, I want to hear your thoughts on that. But, you know, I was also particularly struck by the stories of, like, Elena and Sara and the decisions that they made to become pregnant and fight for their right to have a family amid such a tense political moment that threatened families and, you know, on such a daily basis. Can you tell us a little bit about that kind of broader role of motherhood in your book? Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, one of the things that profoundly impressed me when I interviewed the mothers and the grandmothers, was their courage. Um, some of these people had faced down policemen, military men, all kinds of authority figures in the search for their children. And I was so deeply impressed by them. And, um, and I'm not sure that I am very uh, well prepared to answer questions about motherhood, uh, only, all I can say is that they seem to me like such courageous examples of, of people fighting for not only their own rights, but to recover their families and what rights the families had, how it had changed their lives from being these um, extended family, but still a very tight nucleus uh, where children were received with with joy and anticipation, and and education was uh, so important to the family. What were the kids going to study? Uh, what what was going to happen? And all of a sudden, uh, this generation of women who had to face their children and their grandchildren disappearing. And um, I, I think part of part of the reason why women in Uruguay were so aware of their rights is because um, we had in Uruguay um, an amendment um, to our constitution for women's rights and votes years before the United States did. And so I had grown up with women who were attorneys and doctors and politicians and whatever. And um, it, it just all made for such an intriguing mixture for me. I, I wish I could say I, I sorted it all out very neatly, but I just felt that this, the, the strength and the courage of these women to, uh, some of them to become mothers even when things were, were going very badly in the country, but others to have lost their children and then have to find them I felt um, I felt a need to document that for myself, if for no one else, as an example of the strength and the courage of women. 
And I don't know that that's answered your question at all, (laughs) because it's just my motivation. Yeah. Right. No. And in those stories, like as I was reading, I think those were those particular women were so striking to me and the way that they handled the decisions that they made were so striking because it's exactly what you said. It was so courageous. So like it was just you don't expect that kind of agency at times. And and that's exactly what they did is that they completely went against what was expected, what they feared. And they just decided to make their own families and to pursue these lives, even though it could be completely turned upside down because of the political situation. And they've obviously seen it happen to other people, their friends and other family members and things like that. So it was, it was really striking to me. And and I'm I'm a historian of motherhood. So that's always a question I'm thinking about. Um, Yes. Yes. No, no, excuse me. You just said a very good thing of, of that they created extended families of other people in like circumstances and how important that was to their survival yeah that was yeah those that, those elements i found really striking and it's funny like when you when you say that i i, I still get I'm very kind of sensitive i get i get goosebumps every time i think about um that like it was a book that i read once and then it was very difficult to go back and read read these sections because some of it was very difficult to read because it was just so kind of emotionally powerful um the another question that i wanted to ask you so one other element that I thought was particularly striking was the role of rumor and information through word of mouth. As I was reading, I realized that a lot of the characters, um, and obviously these are people's stories, um, a lot of these stories and like the information that they would get as things sort of developed, it would just come through rumor or through word of mouth because there was no real direct so- like line of information that was available for them in many ways. So I found also that like the information that was circulated in this way was much more credible than through other mediums and how this affected the way that people lived every day. For example, like you couldn't, there were no announcements of the people of the children being disappeared or separated. You just kind of had to know what was going on in many ways. Did this strike you as particularly important when you were writing the book? Was that something that you found really difficult to kind of um, weave together different sources of information and word of mouth and hearsay and things like that? You know, I must admit that the first time I seriously thought about it in that way was when you sent me your questions. (laughs) Because for me, it was such an accepted way of dealing with the situation. We knew that we couldn't depend on the military government to tell us the truth. So the only source available to us was one another. And we had to learn to trust that too. Um, I don't remember an instance of anyone betraying that trust, say, and giving false information purposefully. Um, But it all depended on that almost underground network of people communicating with one another because there came a time in Uruguay when most of the people involved in the in the struggle uh, and whose children had been disappearing were really um, living literally in some cases underground. And um, their only way of, of really knowing what was going on was other uh, people in the movement keeping them informed or telling them 
it's time to move, you know, the police are coming your way or there'll be a search of your house at such a time. Uh, that was how people communicated. It's, it's a little bit reminiscent um, in a very different context, but it's a little reminiscent of, of the resistance in, in Europe uh, when, when the Nazis were in charge, that uh, there were these movements of people who created a sort of an underground messaging system. Yeah, yeah, no, and I can imagine. I'm thinking in particular as well, it was just something that was very prominent in the Soviet Union and places where denunciations. I think that's the part where I was asking, did you ever find, but you, you answered this question really well when you asked, when you said that that trust was never really betrayed because there were instances where people were denouncing each other in, in other locations and, you know, the places that have gone through, through very similar experiences. Um, so there were, there were times where like word of mouth and rumor harmed more than it helped. And so that was, that was a dynamic that I found really interesting and in how in the Uruguayan case, it helped more than it harmed. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yes, I it found did. it really, and, really, really mm-hmm. striking. Mm-hmm. Because there were people who were being um, viciously tortured in some, uh, in some military jails. And um, I, I, I wouldn't claim that there was never an instance because I can't know that. Right. But I do know that nobody ever reported one to me. And they were talking to me pretty openly about their experiences. I think it would have come up, but it never did. Right. Interesting. So we, we talked a little bit about this already, obviously, when you mentioned the United States. Um, and I think it's impossible to kind of bypass the role of the United States in all of this. Um, yes. I found it, yeah, yeah, I found it particularly striking how early on in the book, one of the, the characters in the book looked to the United States as kind of a savior. Forgive me, I'm forgetting the character's name. Um which falls in accordance with the strong kind of nationalist narrative that the United States was able to sort of successfully export on a global scale. Obviously, this kind of idea that the U.S. is like the policeman of the world and it's spreading democracy and it's helping uplift a lot of these, you know, third world countries and countries that are underdeveloped. So it falls in accordance with that, that kind of idea of seeing the United States as like a savior. However, Obviously, historians and many of the history books that are listening in now may know the United States was really heavily involved in aiding right wing military dictatorships as part of the larger kind of Cold War strategy against communism. So can you tell us a little bit more about the U.S.'s participation in particular Operation Condor and the lingering effects that this had in the region? Well, before even Operation Condor, there was the School of the Americas in Panama. And um, their military went there from all over Latin America to be trained. And among the things they were trained in was um, supposedly how to how to subvert, counter, and suppress any movement that to them appeared to be anti-democratic. And in the United States, there has always been, in my opinion, and there still is, a lot of confusion between socialism and communism. They are not the same. But most Latin American countries were inclining towards socialism, even if they elected a communist candidate, as happened in Chile. But it did not mean that they wanted to introduce Russian or Soviet Union communism into the countries. They just wanted a more socialist um, form of government. 
And for the United States, that was very, very threatening, especially after Cuba, because Cuba was right in the U.S.'s backyard, so to speak. And as they began to see that Central America and South America were all going, not necessarily because I think, again, they had trouble differentiating between socialism and communism, that it was not the Soviet Union that, that people were trying to, to bring into their countries in a communist system. They just wanted a fairer social system, which is what socialism appeared and, and did offer in most cases. Um, I think people would probably say that Uruguay and most of the Latin American countries are very socialist. In Uruguay, for years, I mean, long before it was thought of in other countries, there have been pensions for the elderly, free education through university, all of uh, health care provided, all of those things that we now talk about and that frighten people so much over here, um, I grew up with. And, and and so did many Latin Americans. Um, so it when the United States had that very fearful response that, oh boy, here goes all of Latin America the way of Cuba, it was again a, a misrepresentation, a misreading of the, of the cultures and the societies that they were dealing with. And at one point um, after well, as you know, the, the very famous case of overthrowing Salvador Allende in, in, um, in Chile. And um, it, it, uh, it sort of spiraled after that. And then several of the military dictatorships decided that they wanted to form a coalition and, that, um, and so that they could fight the, these movements uh, together. And um, that was quite a long list. It was Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Bolivia, Paraguay, Brazil, Peru, and Ecuador, if I remember rightly. And they had a silent partner. And the silent partner that financed them was the United States. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. It's, a, it's, it's interesting how a lot of the uh, literature that's coming out from, you know, historians and other academics in that, that study Latin America and the regions, particularly during the Cold War, a lot of them have really kind of emphasized Operation Condor and like everything that the United States has been involved in very strongly. I think in the last 15, maybe 20 years, it's been pr particularly prolific, those kinds of studies, um, because it's less known. Obviously, in the region, I've been and very I think surprised. It's, yeah, and I was going to say, I think yep. it's very um, kind of naive of us to to think that that was the only instance. Obviously, this, the United States has had a deeper kind of connection to Latin America as a region, interfered in it as a region for a really long time. Oh now. my! Oh yes, and Africa suffered from something similar. So did Asia. I mean, it was a worldwide fear of communism that really drove. Um, United States to support these far-right movements. And it's interesting because I, when you were saying that about it has recently started to appear, I was so 
surprised not too long ago to read about Operation Condor in I don't know where, but something published in the U.S. And I thought, my gosh, thinking back to when my book was so strongly rejected, and one of the reasons was because it spoke of Operation Condor, which was believed not to be true. It's it's amazing how some histories are not meant to be told until a lot later when it's acceptable to do so. When enough time has passed where it's not quite so um, raw in a lot of ways, where those emotions aren't so raw and so heightened. And obviously in a moment like post 9-11 where things were so heightened and kind of everything was very kind of nerve wracking, it was probably the worst time to bring a book like this to fruition. But yet that doesn't mean it wasn't necessary to be written or it wasn't necessary to be read like of course it was it was very important particularly in those moments but how how i i don't know that there were many people at all willing to face that um that participation i don't know it i, I wish it could have been in a way but as I, as i mentioned earlier i'm glad it didn't because it gave me that opportunity later on to to speak to other survivors which was very valuable which I think it's it's really interesting, too, because the way that you sort of discussed how a lot of the children that you were interviewing, they grew up. But a lot of that also, it gave you a lot more information. But then at the same time, it also kind of, um, and I'm thinking in particular, like memory studies can be very difficult because as you grow, yes, your thoughts kind of develop with you, but also your memories start to fade in a lot of ways. Um and I remember, um, this is one of my questions, where I, I wanted to talk a little bit about memory and kind of generational trauma. I remember so specifically getting goosebumps after reading your description of like the disappearances of the desaparecidos as a permanent crime and how it's a form of dying that doesn't allow for death or life. Like even saying it now kind of gives me these crazy goosebumps because it's so poignant and so striking and it's so visceral in many ways how impactful and kind of accurate that was of a description of it. Um, so I'm curious to ask, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna say, I can take absolutely no credit for that. It was, and I hope I said so in the book, it was Esther who said that. That Esther was, had lost her daughter, Emilia, her son-in-law, and her granddaughter, Mariana. And it was she who put it that way, that that's what, how she thought of it as a permanent crime. That's, yeah, it's funny because for some reason it gave me, it gave me almost like, you know, like sometimes you read something and it strikes a different type of memory. It reminds me a lot of the kind of um, verbiage and the words that were being used to describe the Spanish Civil War. And, and those types of literatures. I was reading a lot of um, a lot of books about the Spanish Civil War a couple of years ago, and I was doing deep research about the kind of trauma and the children and the families that were affected by the Spanish Civil War. And a lot of it kind of resonated in many ways with this type of description, where it's this sort of in-between, like it's neither death, it's neither life, it's just this kind of trauma you can, you kind of live with, you learn to live with in many ways. Yes. So oh, how that's do you think, very interesting. Mm. Yeah, yeah. How do you think this moment, um, this kind of period is understood or remembered in Uruguay today? There are still um, uh, two factions, um, and in, in Argentina as well. And in Argentina, they have a name for it. They call it La Grieta, sort of the, um, what would you call it? Not a hole, but a... a 
um, well, a divide, a profound divide between the people who think, look, this was necessary. The military and the police did what they had to do to save the country and, and, and you know, bring it back into normality, uh, et cetera. You know, there was that a complete justification for, for what happened there. And there are still those who march every year, in May of every year, um, they have something called La Marcha del Silencio. And it is a silent march where people march down the main avenue of Montevideo holding pictures of those who are still disappeared. And I don't know if you knew that about the cover of the book, um, but the cover, the background of the cover of the book it's the is march. the march wow. that took place this, this last week. Yeah, this was last May. So, yeah, there's still that that divide. And um, people who think, no, these were criminals, they asked for what they got, and um, they deserved what they got. Nobody says that about the children, but they do say it about the parents. And how do you think the displacement and, like, the disappearance of children and their family members really kind of have affected Uruguayans to this day? Like, the family structures, are there still people actively kind of searching for their separated uh, children or great or grandchildren? Yeah, there are. Yeah. There are. And um, they have different organizations and they, you know, they follow leads if they can. But as you can imagine, with a lot of things were, yeah, and a lot of yeah, things were undocumented. Yeah. I assume a lot of the practices oh. and things like that were oh, undocumented. Yes. I mean, we oh, saw the case yes. in Argentina. Obviously, people were being thrown out of airplanes into the into the ocean. So it's kind of hard yeah. to re- to recover and children what happened were being to those people. It's just mm-hmm. bodies. Yes, very, very, because there was no trace when when uh, when the for the military forces or the police, whoever took the children from the people they were arresting and dropped them off at orphanages, they didn't drop them off with information about who those children were. And so, you know, <laughs> it's not like, okay, I'll just search the orphanages with, with, you know, the, these many years later when, when they would have been long gone anyway, with a name because they didn't leave them with a name or any information of who their family was. So I am, I'm certain that there are still people out there who um, were, were born, were, were part of this whole being from the disappeared that have uh, never turned up. I don't think there are many. I suspect that uh, most of, of the children and one would now be adults uh, who have not been found are not alive, but because I think they would have come to the surface sooner than this, but that's a very pessimistic view. I, I'm glad the families still march and still maintain their, their hope. So I wanted to ask you, obviously, one of our final questions, because I think this book was one, typically I, I sort of cover academic books where, you know, I can kind of go chapter by chapter and sort of discuss, all right, what are the main takeaways of this chapter, that chapter? But this was obviously a very kind of refreshingly different book to read because there was, there's no skimming, there's no... Um, there was no way for me to kind of say like, okay, like let me highlight this chapter that was very particular and very strong to this author's argument. This is a book that you started it and you had to finish it because you're 
going in and you're really following these narratives and following the stories of these people in such an intricate way that kind of obviously brings out so many different emotions and uh, obviously like informs us along the way of the political context and so many other different things. So it's very difficult to, in, in many ways to kind of prepare questions for a book like this because so much of it requires the listeners to read, right? Like they have to read the book and really understand what these narratives are about. And obviously I don't want to spoil a, a lot of, um, a lot of that. So to, to kind of ask a final question, um, what do you think are some of the lessons or takeaways that you want our listeners and your readers to take away from this book? I will answer that. But first, I want to say something about the style of the book, because um, I've written several versions of it. And I finally decided that what was most compelling about this book, it was the personal stories, And I wanted to tell those I wanted to provide some context, and I wanted to provide some history. And, um, but I thought I do not want to write a traditional academic history book. I want to write something that uh, is accurate and, and, you know, rigorous, but at the same time that people will really want to read. And, um, and there is a movement in Spain now, um, I don't know if you've heard about it, called Novela Sin Ficción, and they are this kind of book. They are, they are books that tell uh, a real story, that provide historical background, but that hopefully make them very readable to a much greater audience. And so that was my, <laughs> my objective. Um, with no, absolutely. That. And I think a yeah. lot of our listeners or um, anybody who's kind of like academically interested in history, this is a great book to read alongside a lot of next to like a lot of these like heavily theoretical books about, you know, the political or social context. Cause this obviously a lot of information, but this really kind of brings out anybody who's interested in social history will love this book because it's about people. It's about people and their stories and their emotions. And it's very much in line with a lot of the kind of um, historical turns that we've been experiencing in the Academy and like talking about emotions and feelings and things like that. So it's a great book to um, even put alongside or as a complimentary book to one of these like more heavily theoretical readings or have this be the main book and then an article as like a theoretical reading alongside it. Like it's, it's a great kind of complimentary reading and it's, it's important as well, I think to kind of highlight books that are historical in nature, but aren't necessarily traditionally written because I think it's also kind of, I, at least personally, I feel like the, the more kind of um, like, I love prose. I love reading books that engage me. And sometimes we get very kind of formulaic in the way that we write. And so I really love to kind of engage books like this where, you know, you are kind of drawn in immediately and that's kind of the whole point of it. Right. And you obviously learn things along the way. So I think as obviously the style of the book is different from what traditional academics in the United States write, but I still think it's still very kind of, um, useful in a classroom setting or in a graduate seminar setting, or even for people who are just interested in the topic in general, I think it's very useful because it is very informative as well. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you. Because it's um, precisely what I hoped for, that that people would find it useful uh, from a historical as well as a, a more, you know, emotional human point of view. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, so... You um, asked me something else, I'm sorry. I was going to circle back to that. So what do you think um, are some of the lessons or the takeaways that you want our listeners and your readers to kind of take away from this book? 
Uh, it's a great question, and I, I wish I had a really inspiring answer. I think the only thing I, I, I think that the thing that it just sort of distills down to for me is that war is a totally useless exercise. Well, no matter if it's a world war or if it's, a, you know, the kind of smaller wars that were going on all over Latin America, it just seems to be that we we make one war to right the wrongs of the war that preceded it and that that only causes more misery and then we have to have another war to make that right and i just um i despair of the endless cycle that human beings have made of war after war after war um and of course the ones who pay the dearest for it are women and children and um yeah, I, I think it would be that, that we really need to rethink how we negotiate around whatever differences it is that we're having that doesn't entail uh, the violence that then gets carried out. I mean, we're seeing it around the world right now. It's terrible. And um, it's just so useless. Uh, I'm babbling. Sorry. <laughs> No, you're fine. And um, to kind of ask one final question, because now I'm actually a little bit curious about this. Um, is this book, obviously, like the, I'm reading the English version of it, is this book going to be published in Spanish? Not that I know of. It hasn't, um, no one has um, come forward saying, yes, we'd like to do this. But um, I know that uh I think it would be much appreciated in in, in Uruguay, especially. Yeah, if that's it were, that's but, why I wanted mm. to ask. I'm I'm curious to see how a book like this would be received in Uruguay. Mm, I wonder. Yeah, I I think it would be received by both sides uh, in the in their in their own way in their own way. Yeah, <laughs> but but since um, the history in it can be looked up, and unless you disbelieve all sources, of course. But if you have some belief in historical references and sources, you can look all this stuff up and, uh, and see that it really happened. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I have mixed feelings about it appearing in Uruguay too, but I think ultimately I would like it too if there was that opportunity, yeah. Well, Tess, thank you so much for coming on and for having this important conversation with us and for helping us understand, I think, on a more, as, as we talked about, as more on a more emotional level, the important and lingering effects of this historical event. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for the opportunity, Rosemary. Absolutely. The Dark Side of Memory is published by Rio de la Plata Editions and is available for purchase by all major book retailers. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Until next time. And Rosemary, may I make a small correction there? Sure, go ahead. Rio de la Plata Editions was not the one that published this. It was Invisible Ink. Invisible, thank you and so much. <laughs> should say that in the front, I think. And um, unfortunately, uh, I think the two have got kind of mixed up, but they are not the same at all. So, <laughs> so no worries. it doesn't thank you matter. So much. I'm sure. <laughs> people could find it somehow and won't care who, who published it but uh, yeah. right okay thank you so much thank you for the correction thank you. all right okay. everyone thank you so much for listening thank you bye-bye